Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 407 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in Three Little Things, the writer Anne Morgan and our host Julia Copus speak about three objects that have a special significance in Anne's writing life, and Anne passes on three of her top writing tips. Welcome to episode five of the Writers Aloud Three Little Things podcast from the Royal Literary Fund, in which we talk with writers about their work and writing life through the medium of three objects that have particular significance to them. And then we cajole them into offering up three bits of advice that might be a help to you in your own writing journey. Today's guest is novelist, non-fiction writer and editor Anne Morgan. Anne is based on the coast in Folkestone in the UK. In 2012, she set herself the Herculean task of reading a book from every country in the world in the space of a single year. And she recorded her efforts in her hugely popular blog, ayearofreadingtheworld.com. Not surprisingly, the project caught the imagination of readers from all corners of the globe. It led to widespread media coverage and a TED talk that has already had well over 1.8 million views. Now, luckily for us, the project culminated in the non-fiction book that we'll be discussing today, Reading the World, How I Read a Book from Every Country. Anne continues to blog, write and speak about international literature, as well as building a career as a novelist. Her debut novel, Beside Myself, has been, appropriately enough, translated into eight languages and been optioned for TV. Her second novel, Crossing Over, was published as an Audible exclusive in 2019. Anne, I am so excited to have you as a guest today. Your commitment and your passion for this subject is abundantly clear. And I find it pretty breathtaking, actually, that the first edition of Reading the World appeared in print just three years after you'd set yourself the task of reading a book from every country in the world. So that includes the reading, the writing of the book and its publication. Um, And now there's a new edition coming out. So clearly there's something in all of this that has struck a chord with readers. Why do you think it has resonated so deeply? Well, thank you very much, first of all, Julia. I, yeah, it's rather unexpected for me because um, when I started the project to read a book from every country in the world in a year, it was a very naive personal project. Um, I honestly didn't envisage that it would lead to a book and it just didn't occur to me that this had the makings of a book. Um, and it was only about four months into the quest um, when I was talking to the literary editor of The Scotsman, he was writing an article about it connected to World Book Day. And he said, oh, surely you're going to do a book about this. And I thought, oh, well, perhaps I am. Um, So that was a bit of a surprise. Um, I think the whole thing was a surprise as well, because I had no idea when I started it whether anyone would be interested. You know, I had started a blog in the hopes that 
people would give me suggestions and, and you know, help me along the way. But I really had no idea if anyone would care. And what was quite amazing was how quickly people all over the planet uh, became involved in it and went far beyond what I had imagined they would do and sending me books and helping translate things for me and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think what it was, I think there were two things. I think one thing was people respond really well to genuine curiosity and uh, the admission that you don't know something, mm-hmm. um, a real open curiosity. And that's not a complacent, oh, I don't know, I don't care. But, oh, I've discovered I don't know this and I'd like to find out more. Um, and I'm going to approach this with a real openness Um People seem really to warm to that. And I think also another thing is that um, the human impulse to share stories is universal. And it's it's a really joyful thing that connects us across all kinds of divides. Um, And so people around the planet were enthused at the idea of this eccentric person in London exploring the world's stories and keen to share their view, you know, and share their nation's stories. Um, Mm. So it was that. I think those two things um, were what captured people's imagination initially. Um, And then it's developed from there, really. Isn't that great that you can say from all over the planet? (laughs) (laughs) It's very sweet, actually. I mean, I I get messages still almost every day from people all over the place. I had an email a few weeks ago from someone living in the foothills of the Himalayas. Wow. Uh, and they were, uh, I think, in their early early mid-20s. And they said, oh, you'll never know the impact you had on a generation coming to reading in the 2010s. And I just thought, that's that, that's pretty lovely, you know, to have... That's about the best thing you could hear, really, isn't it? It's pretty lovely, yeah. Um, and also what's been special as well is the number of writers or, or relations or friends of writers who have featured in the project who've been in touch over the years um, and shared you know, personal stories and, and shared their enthusiasm yeah. about having their work included. I think what's particularly lovely about your story is exactly what you've said about uh, people responding to that admission to not knowing. You know, there's so much that every single one of us doesn't know and to be open about that is there's something very attractive about that and I think I think it's a lovely thing that has um, propelled your project onwards thank you yeah I mean I I think actually we're educated not to admit that we don't know things um yeah something that I've I've sort of worked on developing is is um, some reading workshops about uh, different approaches to reading unfamiliar texts or texts from outside traditions that you know and essentially that I've called them the the incomprehension workshops Um, and what they do is they turn the idea of the comprehension exercise on its head so you know Mm -hmm. at school we're always given those texts those extracts of text where you're asked specific questions you know what does this word mean rewrite this sentence in other words explain what's going on here and obviously it teaches lots of useful skills but it carries the implication that there's one ideal reading of a text. Yes, and it, and, and your answer is either wrong or right. Exactly, if, and, and also that if you can't explain everything in a text, you're failing. And actually, if you're going to read widely, no one, not even the most sort of erudite um, expert in a particular region's literature can be an expert in all literatures. And so they're going mm. to be things you don't know. And having to encounter that and, and admit it and 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 really explore it can be mm. very fruitful, I think. Um, but it's not something that we're often encouraged to embrace. 
No, and the Anglophone publishing world does seem traditionally uh, very narrow in its focus. Mm. Um, that's not great, as you as you say in the book, because it's is the only window that English speaking readers have onto the rest of the literary world. Yeah. Um, so I would say I'd say lots of people know about, for instance, the Penguin Classic translations. I was thinking about this. They're mainly from Russia and France. Mm. You know, I'm thinking of books like Madame Bovary or um, Crime and Punishment, for instance. Yeah. But most of us don't really know much beyond that. Mm. So um, just very briefly, because this isn't really my main, my main question, <laughs> but was it roughly the same for you when you started out on your quest? Very much so. Um, yeah, the, the reason that I started the quest was because I realised there was this huge blind spot in my reading that pretty much everything I read was written originally in English. Mm. Uh, and other than a few classic translations, um, I really didn't have anything to do with most of the world's stories. And that seemed crazy for someone who wanted to be a writer and who imagined themselves to be a cosmopolitan, cultured sort of person. Mm. Um, so, yeah, very much so. And that was... The reason for doing the quest was to explore beyond those those familiar bulwarks of, of world literature mm. that we we all know, but um, to try and see what was out there and, and see what voices I could access mm -hmm. and what the world really had to offer. It's interesting because it, I think it's different in the poetry world, which seems to be in a much healthier state translation wise. Mm. You know, there's there's the magazine Modern Poetry and Translation, for instance, edited by yeah. uh, Claire Pollard at the moment. Um, but anyway, obviously today we can only dip our toes in the waters <laughs> of this uh, fascinating subject. So 10 years have passed since you started out on this project. Um, and I imagine it must have been both exciting and rewarding for you, correct me if I'm wrong, to <laughs> see the increasing access to literature from many other parts of the world that has happened over that decade. What are the things that surprised or enlightened you in your quest most of all, or that just changed your way of thinking? Well, I, first of all, yes, it, it is great to see how much more access there is to literatures from around the world. Um, and it's been exciting to see as well that translated fiction sales continue to grow, even as English language literary fiction sales are dropping. So that's in terms of translated fiction, that's a, a real boon. Um, that brings with it its own challenges. And I think this is something that I discovered during my quest, maybe one of the many things that that struck me um, was there is a what I, I call the authenticity trap where readers who are ambitious to read more widely will tell you that they, they want something that captures the spirit of a place or mm -hmm. that feels authentic. Um, and that comes from a very good place, a real desire to explore and to discover. But the problem is, of course, that what feels authentic uh, to the average English language reader will be a sort of rehashing of images and tropes and stereotypes that we're already familiar with that have been broadcast at us by the Western media. And the same thing is happening in publishing often in that when nationality is used as a marketing tool, mm. um, national literatures become a construct of Western publishers, if you're not careful. So 
um, last year someone tweeted with all the book covers of uh, recent translations from Japan and recent novels set in Japan, and they all had the Japanese flag worked into the design. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the implication was, if you like Japanese literature, you'll like this book, as though Japanese literature is one mm -hmm. brand. Mm -hmm. I see. So it's all like Haruki Murakami. Yeah. And so it's it's that trying to push beyond that that well-meaning but slightly wrong-headed desire for authenticity. So I think that's that's something that I try to to adhere to is is not looking for what feels right to me, um, but what actually is out there. And that that's easier said than done. Um, so can you explain explain a bit more about that? So mm. is it the the separation? You know, the sort of compartmentalization that concerns you well the the problem is that if the idea takes root that all of a nation's literature reads like a particular writer and yeah. usually it's when a particular writer has done very well been a bestseller in english publishers look for similar works that they can market yeah. and sell you know and, and complement that work with um you'll get someone who's a big sort of big name and the problem is that while there are plenty of Japanese writers who write literature that's comparable, there are plenty of other writers who don't write anything like that. Mm, and the chances mm. of those writers coming through into English get diminished when Japanese literature is seen to be a particular thing. Yeah. Publishers will be less keen to take a risk on it. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's significant not only because it means our access to Japanese literature is limited, but it also means that those writers' chances of success are hugely damaged because English is this extraordinary gateway language and because it is the most published mm. language in the world and because it is the language that has by far and away the largest number of speakers when you include second language speakers. Um, books that come into English or are written in English have far more global reach than those written in any other language yeah. and far more chances of being translated into other languages. Mm -hmm. So it publishes in the English-speaking world have a huge influence on what, what is seen as a particular nation's literature. Yeah, I see. Uh, but in general, the shortage in the uh, availability of translations has improved. Absolutely. I mean, I can mention that I have a couple of uh, Fitzcarraldo editions, <laughs> um, which, uh, you know, I probably two years ago I didn't know about. I'm not sure how long they've been going, but they're a big one, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they've done really well. I think it was about uh, 2015 they started mm -hmm. and they... Um, within the first few years, they'd published two uh, soon-to-be Nobel laureates. Yes. You know, so they um, they really hit the ground running. Uh, and that's the thing, you know, publishers can play a huge part in amplifying really important voices. And it's often the small presses that are doing the heavy lifting with that because they will take risks. Yeah. So there's Olga, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Tolkachuk, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She's great. And Svetlana Alexievich, yeah. And are um, you optimistic that that trend will continue? I hope so. Um, there is certainly much more openness to reading more widely and it, it's discussed much more widely than it was. When I started my quest, the, the main forum for talking about reading world literature was academia, really. Um, and that has changed significantly, uh, which is great to see. There are still a lot of challenges um, around who gets translated and, and how translators are treated. Um, mm. The fact that today, even despite the great efforts by campaigns like Women in Translation, 70% um, of works translated into English are written by men. Um, 
there's a huge disparity there. Um, And there's a lot of work to be done about how translators are credited and and how we think about translation. And also, I think, how we talk about it. We don't really have the language as reviewers to review translations well. And that's something we need to Mm. develop um, because people don't really know how to talk about uh, reading a book by someone who didn't actually write the words in the book you're reading. Mm. So you're, you're sort of, you're reviewing two, yes, two authors. exactly. Really, and the problem yeah. of, well, how do you yeah. do that if you can't read the original language? It's, I think you can. I think yeah. there are ways of doing it, but it requires very careful thought. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, would you like to tell us now what your first object is? Uh, because I think it might shed a bit of light on your, your own approach to writing and what is and isn't possible to put into a literary work? Yeah, so this is a tile that I picked up in an architectural salvage shop in Barcelona, I think, uh, although it may have been Valencia, but I think it was Barcelona. And um, I uh, don't know exactly how old it is, Mm -hmm. um, but it depicts uh, the windmill scene from Don Quixote. And um, it has Don Quixote on his horse and Sancho Panza uh, down on the ground and a windmill in the distance. Yeah. And um, it's a scene where he he decides the windmills are giants and he's going to fight them. Yeah. Um, it's such a ridiculous scene when you think about it in the cold light of day. You know, it's such a, a kind of preposterous idea. And yet yeah. it's part of one of the, the great works of European literature. Um, and, and it's a wonderful scene, actually, um, full of the, the kind of whimsy and, and joy in story that, that makes that work so special. Yeah. And for me, it's a reminder that you can put anything into a book and make anything work in a story if you do it well and approach it in the right way. Yeah. Yeah, and it's even, I suppose, uh, led to a phrase in English, yes. tilting. Tilting at, at windmills, at exactly. Windmills. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's changed our language, despite being such a, a, a crazy idea, really. <laughs> yeah. So we could call this your first piece of advice, writing advice, which you've you've snuck Ooh. in early. Or maybe it's an added, added bonus. bonus. Yeah, I think out. so. Absolutely. <laughs> even better um and I understand you attended what you call a translation Mm. duel that's based on this windmill scene uh, depicted on the tile that sounds intriguing so did the duel shed any light on the translating process or or was it just a a bit of fun yeah absolutely translation duels are fascinating if you ever get the chance to go to one and the way they work is Two or more translators are given the same passage, often from a well-known text. Uh, And in this case, it was the windmill scene. And um, they each independently produce their translation of the scene. And then in the event, they bring their translations together and compare notes and Mm -hmm. uh, explore why they made certain choices and and challenge one another on the, the decisions that they've made. I think that's the interesting bit. I, I remember I did do something like this myself for the mm. Poetry Society years ago. Um, but the, I love the idea of challenging each other and trying to sort of work out which is which is a better translation. Yes, in, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and what was fascinating in this particular case was the, the translations were broadly very similar in, in what they'd done. However, there was one particular 
disparity, which was that um, one translator had put that the windmill, windmills were in the same field and the other had put that they were in the, the neighbouring field. Ah. And when um, this came up, they, they went back to look at the original text and it became clear that in the Spanish it wasn't stated. So right. what they had both done was they had imagined the scene and written what they saw yes. rather than translating literally word for word what was in the Spanish. And that made me realise, you know, the, the mechanisms of translation and also writing that you aren't working word by word, really, you're working from an image, from a vision, yeah, and, and trying to convey that in language. And also, um, that's how we read. I mean, we, mm, we fill in the gaps. Absolutely, yeah. Wolfgang Isse um, talks about filling in gaps in, in reading, and that's, that's something with reading the world that I've had to think about carefully, because the gaps that we fill in when we're reading literature from traditions that are unfamiliar to us, sometimes we fill them in with the wrong things or, yes. or quite irrelevant things because we don't we don't have the material to hand the cultural capital um, to fill in the expected gaps in, in the way. So, so you can get some quite unusual uh, readings, particularly when you're reading more widely. Now, you're very interesting in your book on the subject of self-publishing. And and of course, this is a generalisation, but there tends to be, I think, a bit of a snobbish attitude towards the whole idea of um, self-publishing among traditionally published authors um, in the Anglophone world. And I think it's because they feel they've had to go through, you know, a process of selection um, that simply isn't there when you when you self-publish. But it was a real eye-opener for me to read about what you have to say on this subject in the book, about the the usefulness of self-publishing, for instance, in parts of the world where writers simply don't have access to uh, more conventional ways of publishing. Uh, Mm. Could you tell us a bit bit about this? Yeah, well, I mean, the fact is that there's, there's quite a... A grand tradition of self-publishing. Um, many of, of the big names of literature have self-published at some point, mm. including British writers like Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. Um, but further afield, particularly in places like the Caribbean, where distribution is very difficult, where the mechanics of, of printing books and transporting them from place to place can be very difficult. Mm. Um, it's simply not practical for writers to be published locally or in places where um, there are restrictions on writing or you have to get government permission for for certain kinds of writing. Yeah you mentioned Derek Walcott don't you? Exactly yeah Yeah, Derek Walcott self-published I think he used some money from his mother um, to to produce (laughs) his his first book so for some people it's the only route or one of the few routes to getting your work out there and there is a very different attitude to it. It's interesting as well when you start to read widely because there are a lot of self-publishing companies, particularly these days, that produce books that you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell the difference between them and, and commercial trade publishers' mm. output often. The quality is very good. Um, and when you get to parts of the world where you you don't know a great deal about the publishing industry, you can't often tell whether a publisher there is, is a self-publishing house mm-hmm. or if it's you know, a more traditional house. Um, and sometimes the distinction's quite blurry. Mm-hmm. So I think I think our idea of self-publishing is is certainly not universal. It's also been 
complicated in recent years by um, hybrid models and, and publishers like Unbound, for example, which have very different models of, of funding books. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, there are some challenges to it and there, there are issues with quality control in some cases, I think. Mm-hmm. But I think it does allow for a much more diverse spread of storytelling uh, to yeah. come through than, than can often come through traditional houses. And of course, Derek Walcott, who we mentioned just now, you know, became a Nobel laureate. Yes, so. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's a reminder that there are different ways of getting excellent work out there to readers. Mm. Um, and also all sorts of ways of championing that work once it is out in the world. Mm. Um, which is a sort of tenuous link to the to the second object you've chosen <laughs> to share with us, um, a rather lovely looking trophy <laughs> in the shape of a giant pen nib. So tell us about the trophy and why you've chosen it. Yes, well, this was a participant's trophy. It wasn't an award for anything. It was simply for turning up uh, that I got for being involved in the Brahmaputra Literary Festival in Guwahati in Assam. Now, that was a whole undertaking to get there because my my flight was badly delayed and I ended up spending two days in an airport hotel and then finally having to book this last minute multi-hop dash across the world to get there in time for the main events. Um, It took me about 24 hours going via Cairo and Kuwait and Hyderabad and I finally got there. I only ended up spending about 36 hours in uh, Guwahati in total, but it was totally worth the effort because... I was amazed when I arrived um, to find this multi-million person city absolutely festooned with posters for this festival, with banners across road bridges. It was quite surreal actually seeing my face on posters and and the faces of many of the other writers who who were taking part um, all over the city. So so they actually commissioned artworks that feature... Yes, that's right. They commissioned... um, Yeah, there were... So there was this giant cube which had... Um, the photos of a number of us on uh, in the centre of the festival site and and this wall of uh, great writers, they said, and they'd put our pictures up and all these different installations. That's um, so lovely because I think one thing we're not that good at doing, certainly in England, and I do think it's slightly different in Wales, Ireland and, and Scotland, actually, but I think England is particularly bad at making writers feel valued. Um, mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and that was the thing because it, I mean, it was quite funny because there were lots of school groups coming to this festival and they would run after after you saying, oh, ma'am, ma'am, selfie, selfie. Can I take a <laughs> selfie? And they'd take a selfie. And then it, the effect was slightly spoiled by the fact that they would then say, what is your name, please? Um, <laughs> but yeah. um, but I said to the to the director of the festival, this is amazing, this effort you've gone to. Why have you gone to so much trouble? And what he said will always stay with me, I think. He said, um, if these children see writers being glorified and people running from tent to tent to say literature is their lifeblood and that this is a really special thing, they will know that writers are important for a civilised society. And that's why we do this. Amazing. And I just thought that was really powerful and and really made me think about how important it is to champion that. Mm. We could definitely take a leaf out of that book. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, So taking a bit of a step back in 
thinking about what it even means to come from or belong to this country or that and thinking about the subject from the perspective of individual writers as you do in your book. Mm. I was fascinated by an actually rather tragic story that you tell about a writer called Aglaia uh, Veteranyi. Yes. Now, she was Romanian by birth, but Mm. she eventually settled with her relatives in Switzerland. Yes. From a really interesting family, and you can fill in the the gaps here. But what is it, do you think, that Veteranyi's personal story can tell us about the importance of place and also of language when it comes Mm. to a writer's sense of identity? Yeah. Um, so Aglaia Veterani, she wrote one one novel that was published in her lifetime, which was called Why the Child is Cooking in the Polenta, <laughs> an unusual title. Um, but it, it was strongly autobiographical and drew on the fact that she, as a child, had travelled Europe with her circus family. Um, so she came from a family of circus performers. That's right. Yeah. Um, and she had no real formal education. She was illiterate until uh, the age of 17 when she settled in Switzerland and she taught herself to read and write in German which was I can't remember how many languages she spoke but it certainly wasn't her first second or even probably third language Um, but it was her adopted language and she wrote this novel which I wrote about on my blog and um, sometime after I did that I got a message from her former partner uh, Jens Nielsen uh, saying he he would be very happy to speak to me Mm -hmm. and he came to London and we met up And he told me the story about her. She sadly took her life in in the early 2000s, um, having had long struggles with mental illness and various other issues. But he said that she had spent 20 years trying to write um, and had finally written this novel. And for her, it had been a real grounding to have this language and to be able to express herself in it on the page. I mean, that's extraordinary that she had no language really before. Um, Age 17, did you say? That's when she learned to read and write, yeah, and she taught herself, yeah. Um, And um, she wrote this extraordinary book. It's a very strange, quite troubling book um, that, as I say, draws on a lot of her childhood experience and written Mm -hmm. in this very strange childlike voice. Um, and the child cooking in the polenta is a an image that the heroine and her sister conjure up to comfort themselves when life gets too frightening. To comfort yeah, themselves? Yeah, because wow. they, yeah. they face some pretty horrific things. And so when life gets frightening, they use this mm-hmm. horrible image to sort of make themselves feel better. At, at least they're not mm-hmm. cooking in the polenta, you know. Um, but yeah, it was that sense of grounding, the language being a home almost, Um well, you know, I, I wondered maybe if at this point you could read out the extract from Veterani's book. Um, yeah. So would you do that for us? This is from Why the Child is Cooking in the Polenta. Our story sounds different every time my mother tells it. We're Orthodox. We're Jewish. We're international. My grandfather owned a circus arena. He was a salesman, a captain, travelled from country to country, never left his own village and was a locomotive engineer. He was a Greek, a Romanian, a farmer, a Turk, a Jew, an aristocrat, a gypsy, an orthodox believer. My mother was appearing in circuses even as a child so she could feed her whole family. Another time she runs away to the circus with my father against her parents' wishes. That really suggests the the sort of fluidity of her identity, doesn't yeah. it? Um, yeah. It's, it sounds as if um, she gained a form of 
rootedness in Switzerland and in the German language. But at the same time, she felt sort of cut adrift from her sense of origin. Mm. Um, and it seems particularly poignant to me, you say she was found floating in the water, yeah. you know, between lands. Yes. But um, it's a terribly tragic story, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Jens Nielsen was interesting about it. He, he would say that all the belly things, the mother things were Romania you know that's where all that was but the language things the heart ah. the, the head was in switzerland um so is it this interesting as you say between lands um it's a fascinating book it's worth reading yes um, yes i i definitely want to do, to read that one so belly things meaning well, i suppose birth from her actual mother yeah and things like food yeah so they were both performance artists and they spent some time traveling europe um doing this sort of um experimental performance show to complement the book um and she would do readings from the book and he would do performance art while she was reading and a lot of their performances involved food yeah and uh eating or, or serving food in fantastical ways yes. um and and interestingly she had eating disorders throughout her life um that was one of her major struggles so yes and the, the the relationship with her mother i think was a was a real challenge for her so all that the belly things as he said those were the difficult things but she managed to find some mental space in this other language in this other way of expressing uh-huh and uh you know thank god she produced this piece of literature we we have that mm. Um, and and she is she is actually a real national treasure in Switzerland. So her work is in the Swiss National Archives, uh, um, along with actually a copy of Reading the World. Jens Nielsen asked if he could include. A oh, copy how of fantastic! The so it's there with her work in the Swiss National Archives for the next three hundred years um, and beyond. We hope. And well, you never know. Who knows if the world will last that long? But, um, <laughs> That's a whole crossed. other story. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so this brings us all too quickly to your third and final object. Tell us mm. what that is and why it's important to you. Yeah, this is a strange one. Um, it is a broken plate, um, which raised a few eyebrows with the picture framer when I took it um, <laughs> to be framed. He thought it was the result of a domestic argument, um, but it is a sort of um, divorce celebration or something. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, it's a plate that came from my grandparents' house. Um, we have quite a few domestic objects from their old house um, in our house now. Mm -hmm. And um, this was a plate that... Of all prosaic things, it had a jacket potato on it um, and it was in the microwave. Um, and I, at the time, was going through a rather tricky spell with my writing and had got rather stuck in a rut. And a number of, of negative patterns, I think, was being very hard on myself yeah. and um, finding it quite difficult to, despite working very hard and, and driving myself pretty hard, finding it hard to um, produce anything that I was happy with yeah. um, and, and spent a lot of time beating myself up about it. And... I was just I had an epiphany that I was being too hard on myself and that I was I was sort of performing some inherited patterns, I think, of perhaps being rather unkind to myself. Yeah. Um, and I was telling uh, Steve, my other half, about this. And just at the point where I said, and I realised I need to break that pattern, the plate in the microwave split. Your grandmother um, was speaking to you. <laughs> or your grandfather. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah. So I, I have to say I'm not a huge believer in symbols, but the, the timing of that felt significant. That is strange. Yeah. So I, I got it I got it framed and it's on the wall in my writing room as a reminder to myself that that's what I decided. 
So we can see a picture of this um, mm. online, and it's a it's a rather beautiful thing. If it wasn't broken, it would just be a normal plate. Yeah. But um, the the regular pattern of that break makes it into a beautiful object. It's like I can't remember the the word for the Japanese. You know when oh, yes. an object breaks and they do the gold. Yes, I can't remember uh, it either, but over. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a reminder, really, to um to try and adhere to that, and I think it's been helpful in that way. Yeah. Um. So that leads on very nicely to my my final question, which, as always, is to ask our guest for some writing tips. Now, I usually ask for three pieces of advice, but really, you've already given us at least two by now. <laughs> so you've talked about not being afraid of pressing ahead with seemingly uh, ridiculous ideas <laughs> because they might even be what your work is best remembered for, like Don Quixote uh, fighting with his his windmills. Um, and then you've also talked about not getting weighed down by those doubts and negative patterns of thinking mm. that we all get from time to time. And I think writers are particularly, or maybe all artists are particularly uh, prone to. Mm. Can I be greedy and ask for at least one more? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, um, I think this is something that I I actually learnt fairly early on, but I've had to remind myself of in more recent years, um, which was when I was about 26. And I, I spent my 20s trying to be a writer, but as I say, writing pretty unpublishable things. Um, and I had this epiphany when I was about 26, where I was sitting at my desk and I was working part time for a charity at the time and just about making ends meet and just about, you know, affording to have the time to try and write. And I suddenly realised that maybe that was all it would ever be, me sitting in a room on my own playing with words. Maybe it would never go any further than that. And that if that wasn't enough for me, then I should stop and do something else, something that would mean that I didn't have to eat baked beans for dinner several nights mm -hmm. a week and all that sort of thing. Um, but that if it was enough for me, then I should structure my life in a way to be able to continue to do it. And that anything mm -hmm. else on top of that would be a bonus. Um, and I decided it was enough for me. And so I carried on. Uh, and it was four years later that I got my agent on my book deal for Reading the World, which was a, an accident, really, because as I said at the beginning, I didn't expect that project to lead to a book. Um, so it was a sort of... So there's the irony. Yeah. And that's a lovely story, isn't it? <laughs> I always say to people who are, because I do a little bit of mentoring, if your aim is to get published, then mm. uh, you're kind of doing this for the wrong reason. And the irony is when, when they give up that... Yes. hope as their yeah. main goal and start focusing on actually delighting themselves on the page and delighting the reader mm. on the page you know that's when the publishing deals come along yes yes absolutely so that was something that I had to remind myself of and I think because I've been lucky you know with having reading the world and then my first novel beside myself I was lucky with that being published in a number of countries and um, it was actually quite easy to forget that deal I'd made with myself. So I've had to remind myself of that in more recent yeah. years that, no, hang on, this is the deal you struck um, and anything else is, is a bonus. 
Um, and I think that attaches to a, another piece of advice, which is similar, which is, I suppose, to hold on to your own definition of success. Yes. Um, because a lot of people have definitions of success and they have to do with sales or they have to do with prizes or they have to do with other kinds of recognition. Mm. And actually, for me, success is being able to live this life and to live this writing life. This. Yes, exactly. Live this writing life. And so it is it is closely connected, really. And I think trying to to hold on to that, even in the face of sometimes other people's questions and, and assumptions, particularly mm-hmm. sometimes people who don't know the reality of the inside of the industry, who can make some rather sort of perhaps unfair assumptions about what mm-hmm. success looks mm-hmm. like as a writer. Um, but I think it's important to to hold on to what your definition of success yeah. is. Um, and the writing is so much more important than publishing, in fact. Yeah. Um, as witness Emily Dickinson, who yes. published, I don't know, three or four poems during her lifetime and is now a, a national, international treasure, maybe. Um, <laughs> well, Anne, it has been fascinating talking to you. And this is clearly an ongoing state of affairs that you explore in, in reading the world. Um, I'm wondering now if there might even be a third edition <laughs> reading the world in another 10 years time or perhaps even sooner who knows <laughs> you know Maybe. it's changing so quickly um well thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and insight with us on this uh, fascinating subject you have definitely inspired me to spread my wings a bit more in terms of what i choose to read next fantastic well thank you julia it's been a real pleasure That was Anne Morgan in conversation with Julia Copas. You can find out more about Anne Morgan on her website at annemorgan.me. That's Anne spelled A-N-N. And that concludes episode 407, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copas. Coming up in episode 408, Dillis Rose speaks with Doug Johnston about the challenges of multiple literary genres collaborating with artists in other fields, and her own visual art. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.